Peace and blessings be upon you. Welcome to the Ta'lif Podcast, a space where we aim to provide content and connect our spiritual hearts with community, love, service, and prophetic wisdom. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Inna alhamdulillahi na'hmaduhu wa nasta'inuhu wa nasta'gfiruhu wa nasta'hdihu wa na'udhu billahi min shururi anfusina wa min sayyati a'malina فمن يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله ثم اما بعد so we've arrived to a portion of the book when um, a teacher of Imam Ghazali Imam Shibli is recounting eight separate points that he learned from his teacher and we are currently on point 5 and i think all of us will find this relevant and god willing interesting he said al faidatul khamisa the fifth point inni ra'aytu an-nasa yadhumu ba'dhum ba'dhan wa yaghtabu ba'dhum ba'dhan fawajadtu dhalika min al-hasad he says the fifth lesson i noticed that people criticize one another yadhumu ba'dhum ba'dhan they criticize one another wa yaghtabu ba'dhum ba'dhan and they talk behind each other's backs he says i think that all of this comes from envy all of this comes from envy and we have to understand envy in a comprehensive way not just the only one who can envy someone is the person who has less no no even someone in possession of one thing abundantly can envy what someone else has because they don't have that thing so maybe i might um let's say that one person is wealthy let's say one person has abundant resources but they don't have the uh they don't enjoy the same uh presumption of authenticity like maybe somebody has less but they're assumed to be a more genuine person they're assumed to be uh, a more relatable person they're assumed to be a realer person the person that has more might talk about them because they wish they were like that he might attempt to discredit him he's just a poor you know a person a, a you know an underachiever but if he's poor and he's under he's an underachiever why are you talking about him because maybe he's in possession of something you wish you had and the same is true on the opposite end that when you're talking about somebody it's usually motivated by um hasad you want them to lose what it is they're in possession of you know in arabic there's two closely related words but they're different you have hasad and ghibta hasad is when you want somebody in possession of a blessing to lose that blessing like i don't want her to have what it is she has maybe she enjoys great social esteem maybe she's very beautiful maybe she's very intelligent maybe she comes from a very supportive family hasad is when i wish this person didn't have that 
right? Maybe it's just that they're comfortable with who they are, right? You'll talk about them because you wish you were comfortable with who you were, right? They're comfortable with who they are. That agitates some people, right? Ghibta, on the other hand, is I wish I had what it is they have, but I don't want them to lose what it is they have. I just wish I had it too, right? He appears to have a very happy marriage. I wish that I was happily married. He has a thriving business. I wish I had a thriving business. But it's not that I wish he lost his thriving business. I wish he got a divorce, right? He says, and then he also mentions ightiyab or ghiba, talking behind each other's backs. You know, before I came into Islam, I had never heard so much emphasis on not talking behind people's backs. This was something we used to do just like a pastime. We didn't even think anything was wrong with it. You just, you know, you talked about people behind, it, was, it wasn't even something we saw as wrong, improper, inappropriate, immoral. It was just something you did. It was only after becoming Muslim that I kept hearing, don't talk about people behind their backs. Don't talk about people behind their backs. I was prompted to ask, why not? Why is this such a big deal that you have many prophetic traditions related to this practice, verses of the Quran that liken talking behind people's backs to eating their flesh. And a friend of mine told me, he said, because this is something that will destroy the social fabric of the community. And it's not just that people express things about other people that they don't like, it's that you don't feel safe in the community. If something that I don't want mentioned about me could be mentioned in my absence, how am I safe just to struggle as a human being to be my best? The human experience is messy. It is not a linear process. We make mistakes. I have habits that I am trying to rid myself of. I've done things that I regret. If I can't do that as a part of this community without those things being mentioned in my absence in a way that will socially discredit me, in a way that will earn me the contempt and scorn of people, then I won't want to be a part of this community. You see? In Islam, and this is, subhanAllah, man, this is like, you see like the comprehensiveness of our tradition. We try to stop backbiting from like the root. We don't allow it to grow and then cut it down. You try to stop it from the root. Don't even allow the negative opinion of the other person to even get into your mind. So that if you were to speak about them, you would have nothing bad to speak about them about, right? Because I don't have any bad thoughts about my sisters. I don't have any bad thoughts about my brothers, right? The Prophet Wasallam, he said that if you want your faith to fly, 
You want your faith to take flight. There are two things you absolutely need. You need to have a good opinion of God. And you need to have a good opinion of your brothers and your sisters. You have to have a good opinion of God, right? So that you don't think that God has brought you to any place in order to destroy you. You don't believe for one scintilla of a second that God is, has cursed you. God wants to damn you. God wants to destroy you. God wants to consign you to perdition. You don't believe anything like that. You know, one scholar, he said, the difference between the prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, and us was that he saw God as a protective friend. And we see God as an unyielding taskmaster. Do this and don't do this. But we don't see anything of his riaya, his loving, protective care for us. Right? So, is that this is the way you think about your Lord. Right? In the Quran, God is the protecting friend of the believers. Right? And he didn't just say, the elect strong believers. God is the protecting friend of the believers. This is how you should see Allah. That does not mean that we don't have fear. We fear displeasing God because he has been so overwhelming in his generosity to us, right? But it doesn't, but we see God as a protecting friend that's husnat dhan billah. You have a good opinion of God. Well, husnat dhan bil mu'minin, that you have a good opinion of people. And that if you see somebody doing something and it's not exactly clear what they're doing, you rush to put a good construction on it. Right? I remember, and this, in this, mashallah, my wife was a teacher to me. We were driving down 47th Street. I saw a Muslim that I knew coming out of Benny's, B-I-N-N-Y, Benny's, with something in a brown paper bag. And I said, SubhanAllah, that's so-and-so. She looked at me and said, Ubaidullah, it's probably olive oil. Because it was clearly in a cylindrical bottle. It's probably olive oil. I said, babe, Benny's doesn't sell olive oil. <laughs> Benny's doesn't sell olive oil. Maybe they just started. Maybe, they, maybe, maybe, maybe they're selling olive oil now. And then we kept driving down the street. I didn't say anything else about it. She was protecting me. Protecting me from allowing a negative opinion of another Muslim to begin fermenting in my mind. Don't even let that get in your mind. Because once it's in your mind, it can come out of your mouth. Next thing you know, I'm sitting with somebody. You wouldn't guess what I saw. Driving down 47th Street, so-and-so, coming out of Benny's with a bottle of wine. Story goes to you, story goes to you, story goes to you. Now he's an alcoholic. Now, when she sees him, 
man, I heard about your drinking problem. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? This is stuff that can destroy the social fabric of a community. Most people, let me let you in on something I've learned in my travels. Islam, in an amazing way, has a kind of um, conclusiveness to it, by which I mean the creed of Islam is so straightforward. There is nothing worthy of worship beside God. Muhammad is the last in a succession of prophets. Humanity is a brotherhood and sisterhood. That's the creed of Islam, right? It's such a straightforward creed that if somebody rejects that creed, what's after it is usually atheism, in my experience, right? I remember um, seeing uh, a Christian missionary in Egypt, and he probably thought this a very interesting line of questioning. I saw him, and he had his, like, pamphlets, and he was, like, handing them and trying to, like, hide them. And I just came up to him and struck up a conversation and said, how's the missionary activity going? <laughs> like, I'm curious, how is it going? And he had a pamphlet that said, God, Allah, and, and Mahabba. But in the calligraphy, it looked like God and Muhammad. This is the, this is the tricky, right? If you, at first glance, it looks like Allah wa Muhammad, but it was Allah wa Mahabba, God and love. You see? And he, and he said to me, he said, it's not going well, you know, even in the remote villages where we're doing lots of uh, humanitarian work, you know, setting up schools, hospitals, it is very hard to get Muslims to leave their religion. I beamed with pride. He said, I mean, you know, we have some people that convert, but not nearly what we experience in uh, Latin America, in uh, Far East Asia, not nearly what we experience. He said, Muslims are very adherent to their religion. And then he said, you know, some of them will listen to us and they will like agree with us. We're saying, they're saying, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. as soon as we say, and Isa is the son of God, they say, no, no, no. <laughs> they say, no, no, no. Allah, Allah is, no, no, no. We, we were with you. Everything that you said about love, and mercy and heaven. He said, the Muslims are just going, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He said, and Jesus is the son of Allah. Oh, no, 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 we don't, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Mr. John, we don't say that. <laughs> but um, most people that leave Islam, they don't enter other religions. Most people that leave Islam leave theism altogether. Like if you survey ex-Muslims, I'm willing to bet 85% or, or more are now irreligious or atheist. And for me, that's a sign of the conclusiveness of Islam. Allah Ta'ala says in the Quran, like, where do you go after this? This is a straightforward creed, right? God, prophets, humanity is a brotherhood. There's nowhere to go. It's like, you, if you reject that, you just reject that. It's not like this whole, I was thinking, yes, there's a God, but he has a son. It's just, it's not, it's not, it's not very likely, right? 
And most of the people that leave Islam, it's not because of some theological issue. Most of it, disaffection with Islam through their interaction with Muslims. I just got tired of these judgmental, hypocritical people. And that led to them being disaffected with the religious community, and then in turn with the religion from its roots. This is why backbiting is such a grave sin. And it is not something that we should take lightly. This can destroy families, destroy communities. It erodes trust. If I just close some, you know, keshful asrar, revealing the secrets of people, completely haram in Islam. The Prophet said, When two people sit down to have a conversation, there is an implicit confidence that both of them should enjoy. I shouldn't even have to say, hey Khalid, don't tell anybody. That's understood. If I feel compelled to disclose to Khalid maybe some issues I'm having in my spiritual life, some issues I'm having at home, I shouldn't need to say, hey Khalid, but don't, don't mention this to anybody. It's known. And if he wants to mention it to someone for some reason, maybe he wants to hear somebody chime in on some of what I said, or he should ask my permission. You know, I, I, I know someone that dealt with something similar with their kids. I could ask him what he did if that would be okay with you. And then I might say, yeah, but keep it anonymous though. Don't tell him it's me. Just tell him there's a brother in the community, his daughter is having this issue. You know, you had a similar issue. How did that go? But I don't want him to know that this is going on in my house, right? All of that must be expressed. All of that must be said. Now, what's interesting is in this lesson, in this point, he suggests the reason we do this to each other is envy, is envy. And that's something difficult that the only reason you talk about people behind their backs is some kind of envy. And it might not be that you are envious of what they possess, but you might be envious of their good name. There are still people in spite of whatever weakness you know them to possess, there are still people who think of her highly, who think highly of her. There are still people who think highly of him. And you've taken it upon yourself to destroy that. I don't want anybody. I don't want anyone to think highly of her. I don't want anyone to think highly of him. This is why I'm talking behind his back. Because if it were important to me to preserve this person's honor, preserve this person's dignity, I would never do that. I would never talk about them in this way. You know, Imam Ghazali, he said beautifully, he said, beware of fake, righteous backbiting. That's a weird term. Fake, 
righteous, backbiting. And this is when someone is mentioned and you embarrass them while pretending to pray for them, pretending to offer something supportive, right? They say, how's so-and-so doing? Oh, may Allah help him, man. May Allah help him. I mean, drugs, cheating on his wife. I make dua for him all the time. You think that's righteous? You think you think you mentioned this to like what commiserate? Oh man, how's she doing? Oh, may Allah guide my sister, boyfriend, clubbing every weekend. But at heart, I know she's a good person. You you think that you you think this is something motivated by religiosity? How so-and-so? I mean, he's a good brother, man, but ever since he became treasurer at the masjid, the count's coming up short. May Allah guide the brother to greater integrity in his dealings. I make dua for him all the time. That's backbiting. That's not dua, that's backbiting, right? It's backbiting that you're trying to conceal in a dua. You're concealing your backbiting in a prayer that you're making for this person, right? Imam Ghazali said, if you really cared, you would pray for them in private. If you really cared, you would get up in the middle of the night and say, Oh Allah, help my brother with his integrity. Oh Allah, help my sister to, you know, get into a, a healthier relationship. Oh Allah, help my brother with his drinking. Oh Allah, help my brother to make his prayers on time. If you really care, but mentioning in front of people, oh, I mean, may Allah guide the brother, man. Just, that's backbiting, man. And be very careful of that. In this same chapter in Ihya Ulum al-Din, Imam Ghazali says, even advising people in front of other people, an-nasiha, amam an-nas advising people in front of other people is disgracing them, right? If you really cared about preserving their dignity, you would actually ask for a private audience with them. Hey man, can I can I, can I share something with you? Man, you know, can I can I talk to you? But to say in front of everybody, and I'm telling you this because I love you. Stop beating your wife. It, it's it needs to be said, it needs to be said, but that 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 is the likelihood of what you're saying being heated. And maybe that's a bad example because maybe in some cases like that, public humiliation might have a positive effect. But those, those instances are rare where public humiliation is a good thing. Usually, humiliation leads to a lack of receptivity to what's being said, right? Because humiliation prompts defensiveness. If you humiliate me, 
I'm too busy defending myself to actually think about what's being said to me, right? This, I'm, I'm offering this as a jewel. Take it or leave it. These are, these are jewels for every married person. Argument will never lead to the receptivity of uh, the person you're arguing with. Never. Because they're too busy being defensive to actually listen to what's being said. This is why arguments are always ineffective communication. Always. We're too busy. I'm too busy defending myself. No, I, I, look, I don't think I'm a dog now. I don't, you know, I'm too busy defending myself. It's not until what? Both parties stop arguing, go to where they can, experience, they can experience some repose, some quiet, some stillness. Then they say, you know, there is some merit to what she was saying. There is, you know what? If I look at it from this angle, I do understand why you see it that way. The same thing is true of advising people in public. Nobody receives an admonishment that's given publicly. That never happens, right? That never happens, right? Then he said, ذَلِكَ مِنَ الْحَسَدِ فِي الْمَالِ وَالْجَاهِ وَالْعِلْمِ فَتَأَمَّلْتُ فِي قَوْلِهِ تَعَالَى نَحْنُ قَسَّمْنَا بَيْنَهُمْ مَعِيشَتَهُمْ فِي الْحَيَاةِ الدُّنْيَا He said, people are engaged in a rivalry. He said, first, fil mali in wealth. You know, these things are mentioned in order of priority. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, al-hakum rivalry and mutual competition in acquiring wealth, right? In money distracts people until they reach the grave. You know, it's amazing when I was reading uh, one anthropological um, study and they were making the point that even when people live in extremely impoverished circumstances, if there isn't great wealth disparity among those people, they don't experience a lot of uh, depression, sadness over what they have. It's just, it's just life. You know, I don't have a lot, but my neighbor doesn't have a lot. You know, they say that a lot of our anguish over money, it comes from muqarana, from comparison. When you look and you say, look at my car, look at his car, look at my house, look at her house, look at my clothes, Look at her clothes. This is what leads to anguish over wealth. It's not just, I'm frustrated with what I have. Most people without comparison would be okay with what they have. It's only when you begin comparing what you have to someone else that you really become disappointed, right? And it's amazing in this country where there is great, in this city, there is great wealth disparity. It's amazing how quickly children pick up on those things, right? I remember as a child, and this is definitely juvenile, this is definitely silly, um, but I remember as a kid going downtown 
And this is when what you now know as Macy's was Marshall Fields. That was a real luxury retailer, not that, right? <laughs> not that. But, and I would see uh, white Americans and I swear they would be coming down Michigan Avenue with shopping bags. And I would say to myself, man, those people don't have a care in the world, man. They're just ringing bells. You know, where are we going next? Right? And I'm sitting here, you know, counting all my little dollars. Am I going to get the shirt today or the shoes? You know what I'm saying? Which one, right? Now, the falsity of that, that very juvenile impression, I don't know what those people are dealing with. I don't even know what kind of wealth those people possess. I don't know what kind of happiness they have or lack thereof. I don't know anything about any of that. Most comparisons are based on completely surface uh, impressions. You don't know anything about anybody. You have people that you might think, oh my God, and they would kill to have what you have, but you just don't know. It's better to be content with what you have. You know, Mike Epps, who is a comedian, don't listen to Mike Epps, very, very dirty comedian. But one day, I happened to be listening to Mike Epps. And he said something that I thought was useful in my job as an Islamic studies instructor. He said, I bet if God told everybody to form a circle and all of you take your problems and throw them in the middle of the circle. And then he said, okay, now grab the problems that you want. If you went looking for your problems, they would be gone. There are many people who would take your problems. What's your problem? Yeah, I'll take that. I'll leave this, you know, this terminal illness. I'll leave that. I'll leave that for you. But this, this issue you're having, yeah, I'll take that. Right? This issue I'm having of food insecurity, food shortage, hunger, I'll leave that for somebody else. But what you're dealing with, yeah, I'll take that. Yeah, I'll take that. I'll take that. It is much easier to be appreciative for what you have instead of fantasizing about what someone else has. You don't even know. You don't even know what they have, right? You don't even know what they have, man. So the first thing he mentioned, he said, mad money, right? You know, um, you know uh, as a kid, strange, this is strange, strange stuff that shapes us. My mother, mashallah, is an educated woman, but my father abandoned our family. So my mother had to take care of us and she was taking care of her, her mother. So we really never, even though my mother worked as a chemist, you know, my mother was a scientist by trade, we never really experienced kind of the upper middle class life that that kind of profession should have yielded to our family, right? Because we just had a lot of different responsibility and my father wasn't there. And, and my mother did a phenomenal job, mashallah. But, you know, it was never, you know, as good as I thought it should be. And my mother would do a lot of temporary work for different scientific firms and laboratories. But because she would 
do temp work, she didn't get benefits, but she got more money. So I didn't have medical benefits and I wasn't able to get braces as a kid. And when I would see somebody as a kid with braces, I would say, yeah, I know your family got money. <laughs> yeah, I, know, I know your family is well off. And the minute I started making money, my wife said to me, what are you gonna buy? Braces. <laughs> that was the first thing. That was the first thing I did with my paycheck, you know, braces. You know what I mean? So, so now I, I never miss an opportunity to smile. Exactly. Pay, pay for these myself. <laughs> Mashallah. But silly, the things that we use to compare ourselves to other people. You know, silly. Then he mentions jah. Jah in Arabic is status, right? We compare ourselves to people of presumably higher status. They have more status than me, right? Jah in our context, popularity. This person is more popular than me. They have more followers than me, right? They're more well-known than I am. If they threw a party, Hundreds of people would be dying to attend. If I threw a party, I probably would get my eight or nine closest friends. Man, I wish I was like that. Right? Wallahi, this is also a vain comparison because popularity, and I'm, I'm, I think in the, the national Muslim community, I'm not the most popular person, but I think you know, I'm, I'm probably more well-known than a person that doesn't do my job within my Muslim community. One of the difficult things is that you have more relationships than you can really maintain meaningfully, right? You have more relationships than you can really maintain in a meaningful way. You know, it's like a person that maybe has less status, has less, you know, uh, relationships, they can really pour into those relationships in a substantively meaningful way, right? So you should never, and also too, great status of any kind comes with great responsibility. I'm talking like Spider-Man, man. But it comes with great responsibility. You know, when you see somebody, you know, in the limelight, know that the temptations, the um, uh, uh, the um, the temptations and also the traps are much more um, grave at that level, right? So, in my relative lack of status in the larger world, I get some anonymity to make mistakes. See, if I do something, it's not going to be on TMZ. Nobody's going to know, right? I can do something, make Toba to Allah and get on with my life. But if he does something, the entire world will know, right? Here's Tom Brady giving a cab driver the middle finger, right? Which is a, this is, this was something I saw on Google this morning. Hey man, look at this picture of Tom Brady giving somebody the middle finger. Now, what if Tom Brady has any uh, hiya? This is not how you want to be photographed. 
This is not something for which you want to be known for flipping somebody the bird. But when you have that kind of status, you make a mistake like that, everybody knows. Everybody knows. Let me tell you how she was at the restaurant speaking to her server. Here, look at the video. And you're thinking, I was having a bad day. You know, it was just, it was, uh, it was a rough day. People that don't enjoy that kind of notability, they can struggle to become better in relative anonymity. Nobody knows me, man, it's cool. I make mistakes and alhamdulillah. I make mistakes, I'm, I repent, I get on with my life. Also too, the responsibility. I mean, what does it mean for somebody to be at a place where the decisions they make have consequences for thousands, perhaps tens of thousands, perhaps millions of people? I always think about the presidency. We were positively excited when Barack Obama was elected president. I was in Cairo at the time. And I felt like I got showed up. I came to school the next day and all of the African students were dressed in their best clothes. And I said, what's the occasion? They said, Barack Obama was elected president of America. <laughs> but a lot of them were Kenyan though, you know what I'm saying? Cause you know, he, you know, he, he has a Kenyan connection, you know what I'm saying? Um, and we were, I mean, we were stoked. I mean, Barack Obama's the president, but in his role as president, he had to make decisions about drone strikes, make decisions about attacks, make decisions about social programs being cut, et cetera, that affected the lives of hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of people. If I was called upon to serve in that kind of capacity, by God, I would do my best, but I'm not, I'm not, I'm not eager to be in a position to make decisions of that kind of consequence. I don't, alhamdulillah. You know, the Prophet وسلم, he said, the person that should be barred from leadership is the one desirous of it, right? Anyone who knows anything about the consequences of leadership is reluctant to assume a position of leadership. Because up there, you have to make a lot of choices, right? I know, you know I'm, I'm about to start a venture capital firm and you know, it's first, first year, what happened? Yeah, we took over a company and to optimize performance, we had to, you know, we had to lay off 2000 people, right? Yes, the status is high, but you had to make a decision that led to 2,000 people being unemployed. And some of those people lost their homes, right? Their homes were foreclosed. Oh, and you did this, and I'm not saying it's haram, right? Your goal was to optimize business, right? Increase profitability. But look at the decisions you have to make up there, right? These are very grave decisions. Nobody should just like, I want that. Never envy somebody for having more status than you, right? And then the last thing he said, well, ilm, knowledge. You know, and I'm saying this not in any um, lighthearted way. 
Sometimes I say to myself, I must be crazy to get up in front of people and talk about Islam. No, like I really like, there's something in me that I'm lacking a, a kind of, like everything I'm saying is either a proof for me or against me. Everything I'm saying, everything I've learned, I dedicated years of my life to trying to learn about this religion with the goal of teaching this religion. The idea that someone would in a, um, looking for the right word, um, someone would be desirous of this level of pressure without recognizing the gravity of this station. And I'm just a teacher at Tet Leaf. It's not like I'm like Sheikh al-Islam or something like that. It's not like I'm like, uh, you know, I'm, this is really, and even this, I think I must be crazy, man. I really should be trying to get my real estate license, sell real estate, right? Flip homes and just teach my family. That might be spiritually safer for me. But one of my teachers, he said, service to the community is something you only do praying that Allah forgives you. Allah, I realize I'm, I'm going to stand in front of people tonight and say lots of things that I myself have yet to master, right? Give me the tawfiq to be as good as my address. Give me the tawfiq to be as good as my speech. This is what being a religious teacher really comes with. So people who, um, you know, um, are in positions like that. And I think about that, people whose levels of responsibility way higher than mine. I am not eager for their position, right? So you think about somebody like my dear friend, Omar Suleiman. I love Omar. I love Omar. People making two hour videos attacking him. I called him two weeks ago just to check on him. I'm under police security. People making death threats against me. I don't want that for myself. I don't want that. Muslims threatening his life because he's trying to do something good for Allah at that level. I don't want that for myself. I go to Tetlif and nobody knows me except I'm okay with that. <laughs> you know, I'm fine with that. Nobody, I'm not, I'm not that popular. Alhamdulillah, right? Never be desirous of, the, of a station like that. Here he says, فَتَأَمَّلْتُ so I reflected, I pondered. To amel, in Arabic means to reflect, to ponder. I reflected on the verse of Allah. God says, and I decreed for them their allotments in their livelihood. Right. God decrees the livelihoods of all individuals. And once we understand that, we understand that everything we've been given is a test. Wealth is a test and poverty is a test. 
being uh, of intermediate you know, level in your means is a test. I sometimes think being in the middle is a test because you got something under you, something. You have a test of being you know, considerate, generous, thoughtful to people who have less and not envious, not desirous, not jealous of people that have more, right? I have to be both, right? Being at the bottom is a test. Being at the top is a test. You know, there's a verse in the Quran in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, It is God who raised some of you above others in rank to test you in what he has given you. This is a verse. God has raised some of you above others in rank to test you in what he has given you. Now, the way that I read this verse, and I've, I've, I've cross-checked this with different teachers, is I don't read it in this absolute way that he's over him and she's over him and he, she's over me. I read it in the various fields of endeavor. All of us will inevitably be in positions of advantage over other people at different times. So when I take my car to my auto mechanic, he is in a position of advantage over me. If he wants to, he can manipulate me. He can cheat me, he can take advantage of me, right? If he wants to, he can come out and he can say, yeah, obey, hold on. Yeah, baby, how much, how much for that vacation? 4,500? 4, yeah, it's going to be about 4,500. 40, I can take care of everything for 4,500. Okay. He's in a position of advantage if he wants to do that. The person that collects my trash, if they want to leave the trash back there so that rats begin to fester in the area, they can do that. They're in a position of advantage over me. Right? Similarly, I'm in a position of advantage over my children. And when I get older, they will be in a position of advantage over me. See, I see this as, it's a very, very interesting kind of interplay. God has raised some of you above others, not in an absolute sense that you're always better than me. No, there are some times where you have the advantage. And then other times I may have the advantage. A community, a family, a nation, is at its best when everybody in a position of advantage sees their role as one of service. If I'm in a position of advantage, wherever I have advantage, my job is to serve the people whose position mine is advantageous to. That's it, that's it. The only alternative to that understanding is that advantage is used for exploitation. If I'm in a position of advantage over you, I will use that to exploit you. So when my contractor comes to my home and I say, you know, I'm having, I'm having some little leak coming through to the bedroom. 
He's in a position of advantage over me. I don't know about construction. If he wants to, he can go into the bathroom and he can say, oh man, for my labor, my time is gonna be a couple hundred bucks. All you really need is a wax ring on the bottom of the toilet. Some of the moisture from the toilet is seeping into the, the floor. It's coming through the drywall. It's nothing. Uh, 350, I'll have you out of here. Or he can say what? He doesn't know anything about construction. He doesn't know what's happening to his house. He sounds quite panicked. I can go up there, cut a hole in the ceiling, look around. <gasps> oh my God. Lucky for you, you called me when you did. If you would have left this for another month, everything, your electric, your gas, your house could have blown up. But if you give me $12,000 right now, I can go up and make the repairs for you, right? He's in a position of advantage. He's exploiting me. He's exploiting me. He's in a position of advantage. It's no in-between. You will either use your advantage for service or you will use it for exploitation. You get to decide, right? But Allah is testing you in the advantage that you have. You know, I remember, true story, man. This is true. true. This actually happened in Chicago, but <laughs> and I've told this story on a few different stages, but it never fails to tickle me, man. <laughs> you know, I was, I was asked to um, give a, a talk at uh, a college here in Chicago. And you know, after I gave my talk, I was seated at a table with some of the big wigs from the university. And there was this one, I wanna say um, middle-aged white woman who was working in like an office of diversity and inclusion. And she was responsible for putting this event together for the Muslim community. And we said we were seated next to each other. And we were having a, you know, just a cordial exchange. But I promise you, you guys think I'm making this stuff up, man. Every time she said almost anything, she would say, you know, as a white woman, understands her privilege, cisgender, able-bodied, um, you know you know, fortunate in terms of my finances, understand my privilege. You know, we're having really nice weather. You know, I was just like, you know, it was just, it was just a very strange way of expressing what was clearly some discomfort with the idea of privilege. Like she was, and I think that through this exercise, she almost felt like, this is the best that I can do, is just acknowledge that I'm very fortunate, right? And I, I had like a wicked thought to say, you know, as a black man, middle class if my check comes this month, able-bodied, the chicken penne is a little dry, you know, but it, I, didn't, I didn't do that, you know, but I could tell that she was trying to be conscientious and I, you know, I just kind of 
in the moment, it was just a peculiar thing. I didn't say anything about it. But I wish I had said to her, you know, all of us have privileges. And you don't have to say that every time you say something. We can see that you've been favored by God in many ways. The way to deal with your discomfort is the way you're dealing with it. Recognizing that the privilege that you have should be a source of service to other people. That's the way you deal with that. Giving these very kind of awkward preambles before you talk about the weather, you don't have to do that. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, it's okay, you know, you know, I feel the same way. You know, there are many ways in which I know, man, I have a lot more than some other people in many different facets of life. I have to see this as a test, right? Well, that tends on the seabuck, mina dunya. It's not that you become selfless. No, some of that you, you accept it as, you know, favor that God has shown you. Allah says, don't forget your portion of the dunya. But any place that I have an advantage over someone else, I have to try and serve them. You know, there was a Syrian scholar writing in the 18th century named Sheikh Kawakibi. And he said, the problem of the ummah is istibdad, despotism. That everybody that has a position of advantage over anybody is going to exploit the person that they have a position of advantage over. He said, you see it from the top of the society, Muslim society, all the way to the bottom. He started with the top the governors and the governed, they exploit them. The governors, they have a position of, of advantage. They exploit the populace. Employers and their employees, men exploiting women. Women, every time something like this happens, women are always like, yeah. They, they toward their children, right? This is how they behave toward their children people toward animals. Like he went every level of the society. Every time a person is in a position of advantage, they exploit the person under them. They mistreat the person under them. And he wanted people to know this will lead to a collapse of our civilization. This was, in the, this was he was writing in the 18th century. Look at us now. Look at us now. You know, once, subhanAllah, I had a program in Arizona. True story, man, this is crazy. I was doing a program in Phoenix. And from Phoenix, I had to travel directly to Birmingham, England. So I went from Phoenix, I was doing a program in Phoenix. It was like one of those all night PM style programs. Jumped on the plane and just flew to England. I can't tell you how tired I was. I was just... Now, they had given me, I was going to work in England but I didn't have a work visa. I was going to get a customary tourist visa and they would just direct deposit the money into my account. But I was so tired when they asked me at Border Patrol, what are you here for? I just said, I'm doing work with the Muslim organization. <laughs> I was just, my mind was so foggy. I was out there. They said, paid work? I was like, yes. Paid work. <laughs> they said, you're not authorized to work in the UK. I said, 
No, I meant paid as in hasanat from Allah. Paid like that. So they're calling, trying to see what my situation is with the organization I was working with. They decided to deport me. SubhanAllah. <laughs> they decided to deport me. I got deported, man. They, they decided to deport me. And they had to keep me in custody for an entire night. And this was in the month of Ramadan. I get to this facility where all of these people, I was shocked. 95% of the people there were Muslims, right? Like I got up there, everybody was like praying Tarawee and <laughs> And when I talked to them, like, how did you get here? It was all travel violations, fake passports, all kinds of fraud. Right? One guy was sitting on his bunk. This, I, I forget his name, he's from Pakistan. And he was just talking about all of the different European countries he had tried to enter illegally. All of the different ways he had tried to enter these countries. And they were going around, he's like, they were like, have you, have you tried Ireland? He's like, Ireland is kind of easy. I was in Ireland for a while. I was trying to marry an Irish girl, but you know, she didn't say yes in time. And I think she got angry at me. She told I got deported. <laughs> These are real. One guy said, Portugal, Portugal, Portugal. And I remember being so heartbroken, listening to their stories, thinking life in our lands has become so unbearable for poor people that their only goal in life is getting out of Pakistan. This is his only goal in life. His only goal in life is getting out of Pakistan. That's his only goal in life. I said, so if you get into Ireland, what are you going to do? I don't know. I said, do you have any employable skills? Not really. How do you know life there is going to be better than where you're going, where you're coming from? It has to be. It has to be. It's Europe. It has to be. We are looking at the collapse of Muslim civilization. The collapse. We should be embarrassed that our people have become global paupers, traveling from place to place because they can't expect any equity, any fairness, any social services, Right, because those in possession of wealth in our societies, they don't see it as what? I have to serve the people who have less than me. I'm not, obviously I'm using uh, an unqualified generalization, but it's for the purpose of instruction. It's for the purpose of instruction. This is something that is plaguing our community globally, globally. Right? We have to get back to this understanding. Any place you have an advantage over somebody else, serve the people under you. Don't exploit the people under you. You know, um, you know something that broke my heart? I was in Egypt. And there was this, uh, well, very religious man, supposedly, being prosecuted for a number of murders. 
And I was like, if he's so religious, how did he murder people? They said he would go to the poor areas of Egypt, grab young boys, take them to build hotels. Some of them would die from exhaustion. He would just throw them in the desert. Go get more and continue building. A Muslim. It's unconscionable. They needed work opportunity. You took them into the middle of the desert. They're working unequipped to work. They're working mostly in sandals and tank tops, 114 degrees, taking few to no breaks. Some of them die from exhaustion. You bury them in a shallow grave in the desert and keep working. And you're a Muslim? This is disgusting. You're a, you're a Muslim. And he was celebrated as this big entrepreneur before this work, before this news came out. And this, this, is, this is what's happening in our societies, man. This should trouble us. SubhanAllah. He said, that it is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that determines our livelihoods. So I know. What people have, our divisions. That what everybody has in terms of their livelihood is what God has determined even before we were created. He said, I'm not envious of anybody. Ta'ala, and I'm pleased with what God has given me. Thank you for tuning in. Please consider becoming a monthly sustainer by joining 1000 Hearts of Ta'lif and committing to give $3 a day to keep this work coming to seekers, youth, and newcomers to Islam. Sign up today at www.ta'leefcollective.org forward slash donate. We hope you enjoyed the variety of sessions available and hope you benefit immensely. Allah bless you and Allah bless your loved ones.